The note said, they think the word is in the safe. Six knives in Rob's room. Use buys your tea and use takes your chances. Halloween. We don't know what the word tea means. We think it's the old saying, you know, you buy your ticket and you take your chances, but uh, it just said use buys your tea and use takes your chances. Halloween. And that was the day you disappeared, which was October 31st, Halloween. Welcome to the second Bad Rat Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Brett, and I'm looking forward to bringing you some more mysteries this week, and I have a total of four today, so it's going to be a long one, I think. Uh, we'll see how we go anyway. Um, some of the other Unsolved Mysteries-based podcasts um, follow the Amazon Prime episodes in order, so, you know, as you heard from the first podcast, I kind of like to pick ones at random, so I'll try not to pick all the best ones at once, because eventually that'll leave me with... Uh, not too many good ones to do, so I'll generally uh, stick with ones um, involving death, uh, missing persons, fraud. Uh, I don't think I'll be doing any um, involving UFOs. Um, that doesn't really interest me interest me that much, although one does, um, involving an Australian uh, UFO, which also involved um, the, the disappearance of, of an Australian pilot, and I'd like to touch on that one a bit later on. Um, in a future episode. Um, other ones I won't do much on psych med and lost loves. Yeah, I mean, there are some good lost, lost love cases which I do like and I probably will do a few of those. Um, but anyway, we'll see how we go with that. So there's still a long way to go. Um, thanks to everyone for downloading my first podcast and your kind words about it and feedback I got uh, as well is very helpful. Uh, means a lot to me, as I said uh, previously, um, I don't have a set schedule, but as I get used to this podcasting, I will hopefully release them more regularly. So, the first case I'm going to talk about today is Pat Milbach. Uh, I mentioned that in the first podcast. Uh, it's a very interesting story, and it's going to be a long segment that I'm going to be talking about here, so bear with me, but it's it's I think it's truly one of the most fascinating stories that was ever shown on Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, this case was in the original special, uh, which was hosted by Raymond Burr. And the story of Pat Milbach comes down to the, the fact she is convinced that she is the illegitimate daughter of John Dodge, the deceased founder of one of America's largest motor companies, Dodge Brothers, as it was called back in its infancy. So... Um, as I mentioned, this was hosted by Raymond Burr, this episode, and it's not currently available to watch on Amazon Prime, which is a shame. Um, hopefully, um, the creators of the show will put it up to, to watch. It's um, you know There's a lot of good episodes um, in the specials before Robert Stack started hosting. Uh, so anyway, um, this case was again featured in part 
um, during the second season, but uh, I don't think that was on um, the Amazon Prime listings either. So, um, Pat Mielbach is a 72-year-old Detroit native who has lived there all her life. Uh, Pat remembers, as a, as a child, she visited an elegant mansion. Uh, a lady unknown to Pat picked her up from her house with the permission of her mother, and Pat remembers being taken to the mansion, up a giant staircase, and into a beautiful room. Pat doesn't remember what was said to her by, by the lady, but she remembers the room fondly. It was coloured in pink and gold, and very, it was a very fancy room. Uh, when Pat returned home to her parents' house, she remembers making drapes out of crepe paper so she could dress the room up, just like the one she just visited. Nothing was ever said to Pat again about the mansion or the people Pat met that day, but the memory stayed with her for a lifetime. In 1959, Pat's father, Robert Manzer, died. At the reading of his will, Pat was shocked to learn that she was adopted. Pat family, Pat's family immediately began the search for the identity of her real parents. Up to the point of the broadcast in 1987, this information was kept secret. At the Wayne County Courthouse, Pat was told that Michigan law forbids disclosure of adoption records. Judge Murphy did say that Pat's father was unknown and that she was born in Jackson, Michigan, which is 81 miles, which is 130 kilometres, away from Detroit, which is quite a, f quite a fair way distance from where Pat started her search. Uh, Pat then contacted the county adoption agency, which uh, said she was born in Detroit, not in Jackson, as Judge Murphy has said. Pat said that she smelt something fishy about this and was now more determined than ever to find out the truth about her birth parents. At a Christmas party in 1982, Pat's daughter Brenda made a startling discovery. She started reading an autobiography about John Dodge, the wealthy Detroit automobile maker. So <laughs> you can tell it was a pretty rocking party if people were just reading books to pass the time. But anyway, Brenda looks at a, a photo of uh, John Dodge and his brother Horace Dodge, and she sees a resemblance between John and her mother Pat, and also that of uh, Horace and her brother William. And they, brought, uh, they bore a striking resemblance to, to them, and she also turned pages to come across a picture of a house that John Dodge had owned called Meadowbrook, and suggested uh, this was the house that her mother had mentioned to, th to them um, that she visited, visited as a little girl. Pat got a copy of the book and without doubt knew it was the house she visited all those years ago and she came across names of people who were friends of her father at the back of the book. Yeah, they did a pretty um, good effect here. Um, you know, this is 1987, so uh, obviously technology wasn't as good as it was you know, today or even in the 90s, but they did a good uh, kind of fade out of John Dodge's face and, you know, and then Pat's face appeared and I thought that was quite good and you can really definitely see the resemblance between the two of them. So I thought that was quite good and um, so it just doesn't stop there with Pat. Um, there was other resemblances as I mentioned earlier between the rest of the family or the rest of the two families. Uh, Pat said she wasn't interested in the money from the Dodge estate and she was happy with her current status and her life. Uh, however, Pat's daughter Sharon uh, mentioned she did, um, you know, she she did sort of feel robbed as a grandchild, that her, her and her family are entitled to part of the estate, and that she and her own children have been cheated out of a certain lifestyle. 
When information got out about Pat's claim to the Dodge estate, the people of Detroit, including the Dodge family, thought the claim was born simply out of greed. The Dodge's biographer, Jean Petroni, who was initially sceptical about Pat's claim, did uncover a link from the Dodge's to Pat. She discovered that a man named Frank Upton, who was a, a close friend of Pat's father, Robert Manzer, also worked alongside him as a steward at the local Methodist church. Jean Petroni says that Frank Upton also worked for John Dodge. He managed his business affairs and most likely arranged the adoption. Shortly after Pat was adopted, the Manza family home was paid off in cash. Mrs. Manza began wearing mink and Mr. Manza began driving one of the first Dodge cars. Another link to the Dodges for Pat was the resemblance of members of her immediate family to the Dodge family. And they show faces of Pat's family and the member of the Dodges and they really do resemble each other like in all of them. It's amazing. And I'll upload um, all these pictures to the Bad Rat podcast Instagram page so you can see for yourself. I think the most interesting picture was uh, definitely the comparison of Pat and John Dodge, the man who may be her father. Also the resemblance of Pat and Francis Dodge, John Dodge's daughter. They were born in the same month, November 1914 and there was speculation that they were twins. Curiously, in 1982, Pat requested a copy of her birth certificate and by accident, maybe, the state of Michigan sent her the birth certificate of Frances Dodge. The original birth certificate indicated that Frances was born um, as a first of a other, meaning that she was the first child born, which was then followed by another child, which was signed by her doctor back then. According to Pat's attorney, several witnesses brought forward information that John Dodge did indeed have Siamese twin girls and kept one but did not keep the other. A witness came forward on the show named Mabel Burgett who corroborated the Siamese twin theory. Her father-in-law was a hunting and fishing companion of John Dodge. In 1930, Mabel's mother-in-law revealed that John Dodge did indeed um, give one of the girls away for adoption but the information about what happened to the girl who was given away was kept under wraps. The Siamese twin theory was met with disbelief in Detroit, but Pat does display unusual scars on her neck, which possibly uh, be a result of a Siamese twin separation. In 1984, uh, Pat returned to the same courthouse where her 20-year search had begun. She petitioned the court to delay distribution of the Dodge estate and to view her adoption records. Both claims were denied. In November 1986, Pat's attorneys appealed the decision of the court. In season two of Unsolved Mysteries, Pat reappeared on the show and as I mentioned, she did a sit-down interview with host Robert Stack and was indeed allowed to have access to her papers at a later date. Stack said that they, w they would be there when they open up the files. However, I don't recall Unsolved Mysteries um, ever returning to that story of Pat. So anyway, um, so in an update to this case, um, th there's a fascinating piece that I uncovered during my research of the case on a website called Hub Pages. And it's an article written by Sharon Staja, uh, Pat's daughter, and it goes into detail about uh, Pat's struggles of determining the identity of her birth parents and the un unwillingness of the Dodgers to cooperate. The article is about the story of the case as told to her by her mother, Pat. It goes into fascinating detail of what I've mentioned already on the Bad Rap podcast, but it goes into f even further detail. 
Pat sadly passed away in 2009 without fully understanding the truth of her paternity, but was left in no doubt that she was a member of the Dodge family. As I mentioned before, Pat did state um, she did win the right to see her papers, and that happened on February 20, 1990, when the Michigan Court of Appeal reversed the probate ruling that uh, was preventing Pat from seeing her adoption records and her birth certificate. So uh, the article was quite long, so um, now I've cut out um, some of the best um, excerpts from it. So, uh, so basically, you know, Pat says that the, the birth certificate was under glass and it was in very bad condition. It had visible eraser marks all over it and the date of birth was erased and another day and year entered in its place. It was a mess, she said, and the document clearly had been tampered with. The name of the mother listed um, was Emma Jane Nelson, but you could see with the naked eye other letters under that name. It listed the name of the doctor that was at the birth. Um, this name was also visibly altered. And the given name for Pat um, at the birth was filled in as Romilda May Born Alive. Uh, so obviously this birth name was also tampered with and Pat mentions she was devastated. And it was an interesting co coincidence, she says, that the, the name Romilda was so closely related to the name of Matilda, which was not only John Dodge's wife's name, but also the na um, daughter Francis's middle name. The adoption records proved to be more fruitful for Pat. Pat says that although it appeared that her adoption records had have never actually been signed by anyone of the judicial authority, they did provide her with clues as to where she spent the first months of her life. Uh, the adoption records also confirmed that the the same mother's name, Emma Jane Nelson, and this was listed as her biological mother. The records also gave her further details on Emma's background, religion, and her physical appearance. They indicated that Emma was of dark complexion, dark hair, and shortened stature, and of German descent. This seemed so opposite of um, Pat's appearance. Uh, Pat said that she was she had uh, very blonde hair her entire life, and with very light ivory skin. It was stated that after her birth, she was taken to Niles, Michigan, and she spent uh, the first six months um, of her life in a tuberculosis sanatorium. She states that it was odd um, that there was no medical information listed on her condition and why she needed to be hospitalised in the first place. Uh, a neighbour of, uh, of the Manzas gave a, de a deposition to the fact that her illness was lung-related. Due to her witnessing her mother applying mustard packs to her chest as a daily treatment. Um, it also notes that John Dodge also suffered from tuberculosis. Uh, Niles, Michigan was also the home of John Dodge as a boy, and he had many relatives living there um, the year of, of her birth, including um, John's mother. The birth records also showed the name of the hospital that uh, Pat was born, and it listed um, the, the hospital as the Woman's Hospital of Detroit. Unfortunately, when following up on this information, the hospital provided um, documentation that there was never um, a child born to an Emma Nelson at the Woman's Hospital of Detroit. The hospital also claimed the physician listed um, at, at the birth was not on the staff of the Woman's Hospital of Detroit, and that they had no knowledge of this particular physician. So just more information that's just been deleted and just, you know, edited out. Um, the most interesting document included in her adoption file was the Certificate of Adoption. 
Her given name was not was not that of Romilda, the name on the birth certificate, um, but it was actually Frances Lucille Manza. Her adoption was not finalised until August 28, 1941, and at the time, she writes, uh, she was 27 years old with children of her own at that point, and she wondered why her adoption was held in limbo for so many years. From the day she obtained her adoption um, record document, um, she said she has used her legal name Francis, and and that was actually clear on the broadcast because uh, when you see when she took the Dodge Estate to court, um, you could definitely see the name Francis Milbach on there. So she kept that name until she passed away in two thousand and nine. She believes the certificate the state sent her all those years ago, showing her to be a twin um, of uh, one of two live births by the name of Francis is her rightful birth certificate. Whatever went on behind the closed doors, she says, um, will, ev will forever remain a mystery. And finally, she talks about who she thinks her mother might be. And this is quite interesting. She has three scenarios of this. And she wrote um, the first scenario being a woman who was employed as a maid in the Boston Boulevard home of Matilda and John Dodge. Her name was Emma Jane Nelson, which was... Um, the name listed on the um, original birth certificate, or the one that she um, received when her court case was concluded, so that's one option. Perhaps that was just a name that was just put there. The second theory is Matilda Dodge, uh, John's second wife. Um, it's possible that Matilda um, gave birth to the twins and for reasons unknown gave um, Pat up for adoption. Pat concludes that this was mainly probably due to the, her health issues and also to perhaps prevent the healthy twin from contracting um, this life-threatening illness that she had. And yeah, I mean, it was only suspected that she had tuberculosis. And it bears uh, mentioning that John Dodge had a long history of tuberculosis. And perhaps Matilda may well have felt the need to protect her healthy baby from contracting such a disease. The third and final theory was um, that um, Matilda's younger sister, Amelia Roche, um, was perhaps the, the mother. Um, it was rumoured that John Dodge had a love affair with his sister-in-law and it was well known that they shared adjoining bedrooms at his Meadowbrook farm. Another intriguing fact is Amelia, who was known to be a vibrant city girl, moved out to John's farm Meadowbrook in 1914, the year that Pat was born, and perhaps she was sent away to hide the pregnancy. So, yeah, so that's, that's all really. Um, there was no further updates from, from that point. Um, in 2009 after Pat's um, Pat's death and it's still open and on the page um, Sharon asks for any information about um, about this case but seems fairly cut and dry to me uh, that uh, yeah Pat was sent away as a baby um, due to her ill health and once she recovered from uh, her tuberculosis uh, she was sent out for adoption and um, the family that adopted her, the Manzas, uh, were given um, money and also one of the first Dodge cars. And it, it seems uh, Pat was raised in a loving family, so in the end it didn't work out too badly for her. On YouTube you can find um, Phil uh, Donahue uh, did a uh, segment on his show with Pat Milbock and also her daughter Sharon was on there and also Jean Petroni, um, the Dodge uh, biographer, 
and he did a whole um sh- yeah just show about um these these circumstances and they go into further detail of what happened with Pat and that was around 1990 so it was just uh around the time I think Pat was still waiting for her um her papers so check that out as well so that's very interesting and like I said before I'll uh, upload um some of the interesting photos from uh Pat's daughter Sharon um her piece on her pages um some very in- interesting photos of the family and Pat as a little girl so I'll also upload those shortly so next I'm going to talk about a missing persons case and it also involves the story of a serial killer and how uh, the missing person actually contributed to this serial killer being arrested and this is the case of um, Alejandro Espinosa and also the serial killer uh, Richard Ramirez who is also known as the Night Stalker so Uh, In the summer of 1985, Los Angeles, California was paralyzed by fear. Uh, For more than six months, the serial killer had terrorized the city with seemingly no method to his madness or limits to his horrific crimes. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department assigned an 120-member task force to the case. Detectives interviewed thousands of witnesses and also checked out all possible leads, but for months, the unknown killer remained at large. He became known as the Night Stalker, and he killed at least 13 people before his sadistic spree of kidnapping, rape and murder came to an end. Eighteen citizens collected rewards for their assistance in solving the Night Stalker case, but one of the largest rewards remains unclaimed, and the show issued issued an appeal to the audience to help locate the man whose crucial information helped bring an end to the Night Stalker's deadly rampage. The young man was named Alejandro Espinosa, and on August 26, 1985, he called the task force's hotline. Alejandro, or Alex as he was called in the broadcast, uh, gave the detectives the name of the man who he suspected was the Night Stalker. The name he gave was Richard, and also a moniker he used, Despinado, which means in Spanish, I assumed, to be the uncombed one. Alex went on to say that Richard told him about all these burglaries he commits and actually was present when Richard would take items from the burglaries he committed to a fence, uh, basically like a middleman who gave Richard money for the stolen goods. Um, Alex was able to show detectives the houses where these exchanges took place. Alex would then, um, in the following days, read in the newspaper about these burglaries um, that the Night Stalker partook in and they coincided with the same ones that his friend Richard had told him about and basically put two and two together and realised that his friend was, in all probability, the Night Stalker. Three days after meeting with Espinosa, uh, detectives made a positive match with a fingerprint taken from one of the Night Stalker's crime scenes with a possible suspect, 25-year-old Richard Ramirez. Ramirez had a previous arrest record uh, with a booking photo on file. Detectives once again were in contact with Espinosa in regards to the booking photo and Espinosa confirmed that this was his, indeed his friend Richard. The following morning, the same photo appeared on every newspaper in Los Angeles. Within hours, uh, Ramirez was chased and captured by angry citizens after he tried to steal a car and by noon he was in police custody and the Night Stalker's seven-month reign of terror had come to an end. On September 20, 1989, nearly five years after his rampage had begun, Ramirez was convicted on 43 felony charges, including 13 counts of first-degree murder. 
Six months later, Ramirez was sentenced to death. And, and there's a video here of Ramirez being led uh, from the courthouse to a police vehicle, and he says during it that um, death always came with the territory. See you in Disneyland. So, you know, obviously he didn't really care about what was going to happen to him. So um, I think you know, once he knew he was caught, he was going to be probably put to death anyway. So um, the man who gave the crucial tip, um, Alejandro Espinosa, was entitled to a total of $6,388.81. However, at the time of the broadcast, he hadn't come forward to claim his reward. Robert Stack notes at the end here that in fact Espinosa might be dead. However, his wife and son um, were still entitled to the reward money. However, as of this date in 2018, I don't think he ever came forward, nor did his family. And it's really hard to find any information on this and whether or not anyone claimed the money or even if it's an issue anymore. So it seemed that Espinosa was possibly living on the streets with his family and he possibly have, could have been killed in connection with this um, with his snitching. But again, there's not. It's just that's just conjecture. Um, there's no proof to find this anywhere. So, um, so anyway, um, Richard Ramirez, in the me meantime, uh, died on June 7, 2013, at age 53, from complications from B cell lymphoma, while awaiting execution on California's death row. Uh, he was definitely one of the worst of the worst, and well, at least he died in pain, like his victims, I guess. So. Yeah, um, if you search online, there are many interesting stories about Ramirez, especially about his upbringing, uh, which was extremely disturbing to say the least. And I won't go into it here, but uh, you can find that online. And um, he also got married in prison as well, which is quite unbelievable. So some lucky lady won, it, won her way to Ramirez's heart. Um, I recommend you listen to the last podcast on the left, which I think is the number one um, crime-related podcast on iTunes. And it goes into extreme detail about his entire life, so definitely check that out for more information about this um, serial killer. So next, we're going to talk about some dodgy uh, fix-it men who, instead of taking care of your home projects and your house, they're going to take care of your bank account and your personal belongings. And in uh, this case, it was uh, a very good case, but it was also one of the more humorous type ones as well. So uh, it sort of has enjoyment on a few different levels. In the fall of 1988, a man named Danny Marino talked his way into the life of 81-year-old Harlan Nelson. Harlan lived alone in Eagle Rock, California, supported by a pension fund and his life savings of $100,000. Harlan had no way of knowing that Danny Moreno and his accomplice Al Tom Nelson had singled him out to be the victim of a cold-hearted fraud. Detective Richard Levos of the LAPD said that con artists like, like this prey on elderly folk like Harlan because of their age and often the victim will die and as a result any charges will be dropped against them. And they show these, uh, you know, just these guys just you know, these bums basically just sitting on the roof and um, not doing anything, uh, just spraying it with, uh, spraying his roof with an unknown substance and all of a sudden they're handing him a, f a fee of $6,000 and Harlan, not knowing any better and being trustworthy, um, he paid the exorbitant fee. Soon, good old Danny uh, brought more of his, uh, his bum crew to help Harlan fix his house, which he made out to be in need um, of major structural work. 
uh, in the reenactment, it was quite funny. Uh, he was asking for a soda as well. So, you know, he's just he's just taking this guy for a ride, isn't he? Um, next, they show Harlan um, peering out of his house while Danny sits his fat ass down and he just goes through his mouth whilst eating a sandwich. So I thought that was really funny. So over the next few weeks, uh, the Nelsons were going through his mail, answering his phone, pressuring him into one repair after another, and driving him on his errands. Harlan Nelson became a prisoner in his own, th- own home, and it was kind of funny seeing this poor guy looking out the window while these two fat asses are just drinking sodas and eating sandwiches. Um, finally, Harlan was contacted by the police, and they had been alerted to the situation by Harlan's personal physician. Detectives discovered that over a five-month period, Marino and Nelson had systematically looted almost all of Harlan's life savings. So in reality, the con men had done nothing but slap some paint on the porch. Whilst pretending to work, the swindlers had ransacked Harlan's personal papers and found his bank books. Then they tailored their fees to match Harlan's account balance sheets. The con men even accompanied Harlan to his bank, forcing him to draw cashier's checks to pay their bogus charges. Harlan eventually refused to pay the swindlers and as a result was threatened and told by the swindlers that his house would be used as collateral if payments were not met. Harlan started out with about $100,000 as I mentioned before and the conmen um, after they were through with him got all of about 5000 of it. When Marino learned the police were involved he dropped from sight and later he was charged with extortion and grand larceny. However, his accomplice, Al Tom Nelson, remained very visible. For several months, an ad in the local paper promoting S and H roofing in Monoreva, just shy of um, Harlan's residence, um, caught the eyes of detectives. They quickly organised a sting operation to catch the swindlers red-handed. Posing as a homeowner, the undercover officer lured the conmen into a trap. A previous victim of the scam identified the conman to a second officer who quickly moved in. De- Detective John Abbott had previously owned a roofing company and was curious to know uh, what, if anything, the Nelsons knew about roofing. And the answer was nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the reenactment here is really good, really funny. Um, the way the officer sneaks up behind them and um, it's really well done. Uh, of course, they can't even answer a simple question about um, about roofing, and they don't even know what a C39 is, which they think is um, equipment they use for the roof, but in, in actual fact, it's actually a contractor's license for a roofing contractor. So the Nelsons are kind of left speechless, and then they are arrested, and they maintain their innocence like two guilty teenagers. It's quite funny. And they were charged with felony uh, grand larceny. Bail was set at $100,000, but for some reason, was later reduced by half. And of course, uh, as predictable as the sunrise, they posted bail and skipped town. Four years later, Marino resurfaced in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, so 3,000 miles away. In October 1992, a tip led officers to the fugitive. He was using an alias, John Dean. Uh, Marino's bail was set at a million dollars, but it, for some reason, again, a few weeks later, it was re- it was reduced to a hundred thousand dollars. Maybe, maybe a typo or something. Uh, maybe didn't add enough zeros on. So, and of course, with the help of family and associates, he posted bond, and he walked out of jail. 
and at that point he hadn't been seen since. And there is an update to this case. A viewer's tip eventually led to Marina's arrest. Uh, he was, his capture was on the 100th Fugitive um, Captured special on Unsolved Mysteries. And it was he was featured on a special segment that aired on March 2, 1994. Um, Nelson's accomplices remain at large. Um, Al Tom Nelson and Ricky Nelson, uh, both to this date, were never found. Um, and... Uh, as, as mentioned in the broadcast as well, Harlan Nelson, who was the victim of Marino, who fe was featured in the broadcast, he died um, during the episode uh, when it was being filmed. He died in 1993. So that was sad, but at least one of them got put away. So, and the other two are still at large. So, and there's been no updates on that, on those two. And I would say the statute of limitations would have most likely expired by now. So next... We're going to talk about uh, a very mysterious disappearance and with some links to the New Age movement. The missing person in this case is named David Stone. Uh, Robert Stack starts by saying that the, the desert that stretches across Arizona and New Mexico has been a part of Native American myth and legend for centuries. Many people believe that it is a spiritual vortex where natural beauty and spiritual energy mysteriously merge. But Stack going all zen here. Um, so, in 1988, this picturesque but unforgiving wilderness became the setting to a real-life unsolved mystery. And, yeah, it was a really good intro to this story and, you know, sort of foretells what's going to happen. It all began at dawn on October 31st, 1986, 140 miles east of Tucson, Arizona. A local farmer uh, named Larry Rivers encountered a young man who said he was searching for the beast. Larry asked the young man what he was doing wandering alone on the desert track and after refusing his offers uh, for a lift, he continued on. The young man was later identified as David Stone and since that odd encounter, he hasn't been seen by anybody. David Stone... Um, was a, a highly successful stock market analyst who ran a branch of his father's business in La Jolla, California. Four years prior to his disappearance, however, he decided he wanted a change to his life and became involved in the New Age movement. And, you know, as fans of the show would know, um, a few people have been involved in the New Age movement on, on the show, um, and it's often ended in lethal consequences. So, yeah, so if you... If, you be, if you're a part of the New Age movement on this show, well, maybe your life is at risk. But anyway, I digress. Um, Robert Stack says that uh, David's newfound path through spirituality and enlightenment might have led him to uh, a path where there, there is no return. So Harry, uh, David's father, described his son as an overachiever. He was also very kind and very close to his family. But on the other hand, if you put him in a football uniform, he was like a proverbial commando. For years, David struggled with his dual nature. At a party, uh, he got into a fit of rage over a trivial incident, and he hit his friend over 20 times without actually hurting him. And the next morning, he told his friend John that he was taking off, um, just going off in his car, and he was going to deal with his explosive behaviour, and he would be back in a few days. So he, he mentioned he might be going to the desert or the Grand Canyon. Uh, five days later, uh, David's car was discovered on a desolate stretch of New Mexico's Highway 80. 
Several residents had reportedly seen David, including one couple who saw David sitting on his vehicle with a notebook. The couple thought David was lost and uh, he politely refused their request for help. A railroad worker also saw David and heard him speak loudly to himself. He also noted that it was odd that David was only dressed in a polo shirt and shorts and he didn't, have to appear, he didn't appear to have any supplies on him as a normal hiker would have going through the desert. David left his car near the Pyramid Mountain Range. Uh, pyramids uh, form an integral part of New Age philosophy and many people like David come here every year to experience what they call a vision quest. According to New Age philosophy, a vision quest is an introspective journey taken to discover one's um, inner self. It is believed that through isolation and meditation, a person can experience a vision which will reveal their true identity. David's father believes that this beast that he was hoping to encounter was, was evil or negativism that is in you and is the object that must be faced by the person and counted before you can reach a state of oneness with God. Four days after his son's disappearance, Harry Stone uh, joined searchers looking for David. For three days they searched the desert with planes and 40 trackers on the ground. David's trail led them through um, uh, towards Granite Peak uh, and a mountain shaped like a pyramid. David left clues including a pyramid he made of rocks and on the second day another clue was found. Uh, which was another pyramid he, he created, and in addition to that, he left behind his gold Rolex watch and two quarters. About another three miles to the north, another clue surfaced. A strange sequence of numbers which made no sense at the time, but was later revealed to be a series of numbers called the Fibonacci series, which is used by stock market, stock market analysts the world over. However, David changed the last two numbers from 21 to 18, and David... Um, David's father noted that he knew better than that, but it kind of fitted in with all the other strange events from these past few days. Coincidentally, David's football number in college was 18, and he also left his car um, at mile marker 18, so perhaps there is some link to the number 18 that he wrote, and those two incidences of 18 which maybe he felt was important to his life. By the final day of the search, the elements had wiped away all of David's footprints. However, bloodhounds were able to track David's scent over the rugged terrain. They followed his trail back to Highway 80 and to the intersection of Interstate 10, where his scent suddenly stopped about 13 miles from where his car was found. Trackers thought um, uh, perhaps David had hitched a ride out of the area. Uh, Harry and Carol Stone, uh, David's parents, made an inventory of David's belongings from his car after he disappeared and discovered a pocketbook version of the New Testament. Inside they found a business card of a man named Tony Ballesteros and an Arizona phone number. They immediately contacted uh, Ballesteros but he was unable to give them information on David. He said maybe he found his card while he, he placed it at a campsite in the area and David just picked it up along the way. Uh, but most um, strangely, um, one of the items that um, David's parents found in his um, belongings was a note, which um, you might have heard at the start of the broadcast, but I'll say it to you again. Um, they think the word is in the safe. Six knives in Rob's room, use buys your tea, and use take your chances, Halloween. 
So David's parents were troubled by the note, and the only thing they could make of it was Halloween was the day he disappeared. So that was the end of the, the broadcast, and there is an update to this case. In February 1992, two hikers discovered David's remains in the desert uh, area near Granite Gap, which was the area where he was thought to have disappeared. Um, so that was in obviously in New Mexico. Um, it was the same area where he left behind several crew clues before he vanished. Although police have been un unable to determine how or why he died, there was no evidence of foul play in his death. While some believe David may have been unlucky enough to encounter drug smugglers who murdered him, as the New Mexico back county is a choice location for smuggling and civilians have been murdered to protect shipments, police have chalked up David's death to dehydration and prolonged exposure to the outdoors, aka death by misadventure. And in my opinion, I think that's what happened. I think David um, perhaps just, he, he, he maybe it wasn't his intention to go out and die, but he just... Uh, he maybe got lost, maybe got dehydrated and hallucinated and just couldn't find his way back and by the time he tried to, he, he just died. So it's a fairly open and shut case, I'm afraid. So um, so yeah, that's a sad end to this episode. But um, anyway, I'd like to th say thank you for listening to the second Bad Rat podcast and sorry for the delay um, from the first one. The first one was in January and I know it's May now, but um, yeah, just so... Uh, been busy uh in other aspects of my life in terms of work and all that so i'm hoping to get the next one out a little quicker than this one um and hopefully this time in my third episode i'll have a special guest with me um for fans of the show um i, re I really recommend you sign up to amazon prime um they have all 12 seasons out uh, available and i i, I think it's on, on hulu too so uh, there's definitely more platforms for it to uh for, for the episodes to be found and if you sort of if you sort of go through certain channels you might be able to find the full episodes um, uh, bootlegs of uh, of the old VHS, VHS tapes that uh, are circling around the, the Unsolved Mysteries community so keep an eye out for that as well uh, if you have any information on any of the cases featured on the show uh, visit unsolved.com or if you want to chat with me or other fans of the show, um, you can find me on the sitcoms online message board and my username is sdb4884 and I'm happy to chat about any cases or even my podcast and I'll put a post on there about this uh, new episode of the Bad Rat Podcast. Uh, I have an Instagram page for the podcast too, which is um, at the Bad Rat Podcast. So check that out also and please like and su subscribe the podcast on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening, and happy sleuthing. You know, I don't think you two gentlemen are roofers. Uh, but yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah roofers, yeah. really. And yeah, this gentleman's not the owner of his house. He's what? a police officer. Uh, uh, what? And uh, you two are under arrest for grand theft. No, you're making mistakes. No, I, I know. You're, no, you're making mistakes.